The Book Nook on WYSO is presented by the Greene County Public Library, with additional support from Clark County Public Library, Dayton Metro Library, Tip City Public Library, Washington Centerville Public Library, and Wright Memorial Public Library. Hello, welcome to the Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis. It's my pleasure to welcome back to the program today Barbara Fleming. She's got a new book out. It's called African American Mothers, Their Children and Their Poverty in America in the First Quarter of the 21st Century. Welcome back to the program, Barbara. Oh, thank you. So nice of you to invite me. Well, we had you on for your uh, Desperately Searching for Higher Education Among the Ruins of the Great Society and this definitely uh, is connected, isn't it, this new book? It uses uh, almost all of the data in the old book, and I felt like if I pulled it out and just focused on on um, mothers and children, that the impact would be uh, uh, more uh, sustained and people would, would get the the idea more of what was going on in the black family because it really is a bad situation. These are some grim statistics. Uh, you give us the history through statistics of this situation and how it has gotten so much worse, particularly in, in say, the last uh, 25 to 45 years. Um, and, and there's all these different factors and elements involved. Can we go back to the Great Depression, to the mid-1930s, and look at uh, a program that uh, came out under President Franklin Delano Roosevelt? I think it was called Aid to Dependent Children. Yeah. Tell us about how that was set up, because I was not aware of the way that was administered and how it discriminated against black people. Well, Actually, to tell you the truth, Vic, I wasn't either. I had no idea that they had written that program such that black families could not participate. And I grew up in the Deep South in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, I know that very few people down there got any kind of social services. And if they got support, it, it, it had to have come from the city or the county because I realized after I had done the research on, on welfare in America that it did not come from, from aid to dependent children. I had no idea that, that black mothers and families were forbidden to participate in that program. How did they do that? How did they administer it in that fashion? Well, I guess everything was segregated back then, and uh, it was set up initially for parents, mothers, uh, who were the sole support of their children, and the assumption was that white mothers didn't work anyway, and black mothers did. We always worked, so they didn't feel like we needed the support for our families because... Um, we we were accustomed to working. So uh, the assumption was that if a white father became disabled or incapacitated, then his his wife or 
or the children's mother would need help because she was not working. She was not assumed to have been working. Mm. All right, so this went on for decades. And then, according to your book, in 1962, under President John F. Kennedy, this changed. Yes, it did. And it didn't change until then. And apparently uh, there was a lot of prejudice built into the ADC program. People were uh, even against white mothers, you know, uh, they were, um, when I was looking at the research, you know, it said that so many more white families could have received support who didn't because uh, the program was set up to be so um, strict in terms of how they evaluated the mothers. So they could have helped many more white children than they did prior to 1962. And they would uh, drop mothers, you know, for for very trivial reasons, white mm-hmm. mothers even. Mm-hmm. And when, um, if down south especially, because, you know, growers, plantation owners and growers and people like that who needed people to work out in the fields, if they needed help, they would take the strike the white mothers off of the welfare during the harvesting season, and they would have to go out and pick cotton or do whatever it was. Even white mothers had to do that. So the program was run uh, very punitively. Uh (laughs) I would say even for white mothers, but black mothers weren't even allowed to participate at that point because they were already out in the fields picking cotton. Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, yeah, it um, it was not the kind of that was supportive. It was more, um, you know, we're going to give you this because your children need it, not because you deserve it, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Th- then in, in 1962, they began giving this coverage to black mothers as well. And another element in this, according to your statistics, is that after World War II, a lot of black men were able to get entry-level jobs into manufacturing uh, in in America, and manufacturing was thriving, and so they were able to get good-paying jobs, and this had a direct impact upon marriage rates, which is a big factor in in your book, is is the the rate of marriages. Oh, yeah. Um, what, What had happened was that, you know, there was the Great Migration out of the South, and that started around um, 1910, and it gradually increased, and it really reached a peak, I think, after World War II. A lot of people down south started going to cities like Chicago and Detroit and Cleveland, Youngstown, uh, Lima. You know, Ohio was a hotbed of um, industrial production, you know, because Ohio was more steel I think, production, and um, uh, Detroit was more auto. But the, the, the fact of the matter is is that those jobs, those entry-level manufacturing jobs, and all you had to have was a strong back, and you know, to work. They didn't require any high school diplomas or education or anything like that. You just had to have a strong back and a willingness to work and a motivation 
to improve your life, the quality of your life, and you could get a job. And so that really propelled black people, a lot of black people, into the middle class, especially in cities like Cleveland and Detroit and Chicago. It was the best time I think black people have experienced in this country in terms of um, being able to buy a house and a car and even to send your kids to college. And, and it was primarily historically black colleges, but that was the best time that black people have experienced, black men anyway. And the interesting thing about that, uh, Nick, is that I did not realize until I started uh, looking at how long or how short a period that had been. You know, people try to act like we all we had – uh, the uh, the best of all worlds in terms of being able to pull ourselves up and all that. But it was only about 20 or 25 years mm-hmm. that black men really were able to make the kind of money that they should have been making all along to support their families. And according to William Julius Wilson, uh, the um, deindustrialization really started in the 50s. Mm. I mean, it wasn't that noticeable, but it started in the 50s. And by the time uh, the 70s got here, it was just about over. Everyone assumes that Pittsburgh was the mecca of steel making in this country, and it was for a long time. But the largest steel mill that was ever built in America was in Baltimore at Sparrows Point. It was four miles long. It was the largest steel mill in the world. It was four miles long, and at its height, it employed 30,000 people. They made steel the old-fashioned way, ingots and all of that heat and fire and all of that. Well, as it turned out, uh, uh, Sparrow's Point was not successful in making the transition from the open hearth to the uh, scrap, the the kind of uh, electrical steel uh, making process that used scrap metal. I've got to go back and really read up on Sparrow's Point to see why they could not make uh, that process or couldn't make it a more competitive undertaking. But at that point, I think that the focus had shifted to globalization and moving these jobs offshore. And I think, you know, when I think about how much infrastructure they have built in Asia and especially in China and how much steel we could have sold to support other people's infrastructure and how we don't sell the volume of steel that we could have sold out of Sparrow's Point. I just, I don't know. Mm. I just think they threw in the towel and and threw people out of work, and it really didn't matter Mm -hmm. to people at that point. But it matters now. And I can remember Henry Kissinger saying um, that uh, these jobs, because people were complaining even then, you know, men who had worked in these uh, factories and mills for years, they were just, heartbroken and and over losing their jobs and their um 
their life, quality of life, and, you know, the communities that had built up around these uh, factories and mills. And I can remember Henry Kissinger saying, we were going to change to information processing. <laughs> That's what he said. Mm-hmm. And so I thought about that recently when I, I realized I was going to have to do this interview with you. And I said, you don't, you don't come in with the information processing after you've given the jobs away. You have, to, you have to do that before the jobs leave. Mm-hmm. You have to train people to do whatever information processing meant to him. I don't know what it meant. But you have to train people to do that before you ship the jobs offshore. You're listening to the Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis. I've been joined on the program today by Barbara Fleming. And we'll continue our conversation about her new book right after this. The Book Nook continues on WYSO with my guest Barbara Fleming. Her book is African American Mothers, Their Children, and Their Poverty in America in the First Quarter of the 21st Century. There has been a tremendous amount of dysfunction and uh, basically uh, tragedy that has gone on in the white community because of the loss of jobs in both the coal industry and the uh, steel and manufacturing industry, car manufacturing industry, a tremendous amount of pain and um, people have been uh, involved in self-participated deaths, you know, drinking and drugging and all of that because they don't have work. Mm-hmm. Yes, they are angry voters when they show up yes, to vote. Yes, very My- angry and of course, uh, Trump has has deceived them into thinking he can get their jobs back, but he can't. Those jobs can't come back. And so I don't know what the situation is going to resolve itself to, but there are two um, researchers, social science researchers, they're a married couple. They've done work on what they call uh, deaths of despair. D-E-A-T-H-S, Deaths of of Despair, where people, and I saw a video, you know, I look at a lot of YouTube, I don't look at regular TV, but I saw a video on West Virginia, and it was primarily on Welch, West Virginia, that area in McDowell County. You know, McDowell County was where they had the Hatfield and McCoy view. (laughs) I'm not really that deep into Appalachian culture. But I went to Berea College, so I know a little bit about it. Mm. But anyway, uh, it was tragic what he showed. This guy, Nick Johnson, is his name. And I don't really like his videos that much because I think he accentuates so much that is negative. And he doesn't really deal with the culture and what has happened to these people to create all of this destruction. But he um, is terrible what has happened in West Virginia. Uh-huh. People are killing themselves on fentanyl. Yeah. Can you imagine taking that intentionally? Yeah. It's terrible. My guest is Barbara Fleming. Her book is African American Mothers, Their Children, and Their Poverty in America in the First Quarter of the 21st Century. Uh, you mentioned a moment ago how the deindustrialization really started already in the 1950s which makes sense based on your statistics, because when you look at marriage 
and how many black women are married in 1950. Apparently, that's when you had the peak, and it's been going mm-hmm. downhill ever since, and the numbers are stark and grim. And by the time we get to 1980, and by no coincidence, the presidency of Ronald Reagan, we have deindustrialization really kicking in, and the marriage rate just keeps dropping for these black women. It's, it's incredible. And, and one reason for that is the potential spouses that they have can't find work or they're in jail or they have a drug problem or various other reasons. Well, the solution that, that Newt Gingrich and his crowd came up with with respect to welfare reform was that these women should get married. Well, who are they going to marry? I mean, women don't decide just to go out and get married. You know, you have to have someone, and it's usually the man who makes the decision to uh, to marry a woman, not vice versa. And so this whole notion of women, these women on welfare should get married, what they should have said to me, what made more sense was to say they should postpone childbearing until they have either training or education or are married. Not that they should go out and get married to get off welfare. That does not make a whole lot of sense, considering that there's nobody for them to marry. You know, and so uh, they didn't they didn't deal with the number of um, young African-American men who are incarcerated or on community control, which is called probation and parole. They didn't deal with that. They weren't going to give them anything, you know, because the, the assumption is, is that a black man deserves what he gets. And so if he's in prison, he deserves to be there. But these are the men that these women uh, would have to marry, you know, men who they've had the children with, not men who are in um, medical school at Howard University. <laughs> They're not going to marry them. And so uh, the thing of it is, is that the whole program was written in a very punitive way. And the the interesting thing about what they uh, did in 1997, I guess that's when the first year that they implemented welfare reform, Mm -hmm. was that they did not put this in the context of what's going on in the Western world, period. You know, uh, this this um, situation with um, out-of-wedlock births has basically um, increased all over the Western world. This is happening everywhere, and I don't really know why. You know, it would be interesting if I was still doing, you know, teaching and doing social science research as a... As a um, paid career, I would probably do research in it, but in Iceland, of all places, the percentage of -of out-of-wedlock births is 70%. That's what it is for black women in this country. Mm -hmm. I was stunned. I had no idea it was that high. And the average in the European Union is 50%. Mm -hmm. That that is (laughs) stunning. 
where did this happen? And it, that's, it's not nearly that high. The U.S. is conservative with respect to white women having out-of-wedlock births. It's only about 30%, but in the European Union, it's about 50%. Mm. And to me, that's very interesting because you have to wonder why that is. These young women are poor. They're just like uh, single mothers in this country. They're poor. They don't have a lot of uh, resources. And the European Union, several countries have come up with schemes or programs to try to get them housing and to try to assist them in raising these children alone. However, I think in the European Union, one of the differences is that People, even though they're not married, they tend to cohabitate more. Mm -hmm. In other words, the father and the mother may live together, but not necessarily be married. Which is different than the situation. Yeah, and so when they asked them, they did a survey, Klarner, that's one of the sources that I um, use in in the book, he asked them why, uh, why they didn't get married, because... The interesting thing about these young women, for the most part, is that they came from intact families. Mm -hmm. It's not like it is over here. Most of the black girls who have babies in America come from, and white ones too, uh, they they sometimes come from single-parent families. They don't come from uh, two-parent families. It's an ongoing cycle. Uh huh. Yeah. These girls in Europe, these young women in Europe, tend to come from two-parent families for the most part. And they asked them. He asked them why they would have a, a baby without being married. And so, what they said was that they think that why you get married and why you have children are two different. Uh, uh, situation. Mm-hmm. They said they didn't see if they if if a girl if a woman is pregnant she doesn't see the need to get married. Mm-hmm. And what that means to me is that there's not as much stigma associated with white women having babies out of wedlock in Europe as there is over here. I see. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Barbara Fleming, and uh, we're talking about her book, African-American Mothers, Their Children and Their Poverty in America, in the first quarter of the 21st century on 91.3 WISO, sharing community voices through inspired storytelling. And Barbara is definitely a community voice. She uh, lives right here in Yellow Springs. And Barbara, let's look again at 1996. Uh, You talked about how this legislation pushed through by Newt Gingrich after the Republicans finally took over the House uh, in the mid-'90s under President Bill Clinton, they were able to push through what they called welfare reform. Let's look about how, how this has damaged uh, the recipients, how, how they put all these limitations on them, and how so many people have completely dropped out of the support system because of this legislation. Mm-hmm. Well, um, okay, uh, when they basically uh, wrote this uh, welfare reform bill, T-R-W-R-A, uh, they basically wanted to get rid of uh, AFDC. You know, that's an entitlement program. And um, 
the federal government had set up certain requirements uh, for people to participate in that program, and if you met those requirements, you could get the money. But uh, they felt like uh, Newt Gingrich and the Republicans who had written up the contract with America, uh, they felt like, I think, black women were taking advantage of the system. They were working the system, and they didn't want to work. They just wanted to have children and have the government take care of them. So they basically wanted to end AFDC, which they did. And uh, they set up other kinds of requirements. In other words, um, uh, there was a five-year lifetime uh, maximum limit on receiving federal benefits from the program they set up to take the place of AFDC was called TANF, T-A-N-F, temporary, uh, that's an acronym for Temporary Assistance to Needy Families. So they set a five-year lifetime limit on federal benefits. And then they said that the mother must begin work after two years on TANF. And uh, they encouraged two-parent families, and that in itself is a very complicated situation that they did not impact on at all. You know, the rate of marriage among black women did not increase, and and who would have expected it to? Mm -hmm. You know, women didn't have any way of giving men dowries to marry them. You know, you have to uh, give the man a job at least, and... Uh, he was, what they did do, they enforced child support. So if you had set up the child support enforcement in, a, in such a way that the man could get a break if he married the mother of the children he was supporting, he might have done it. But that didn't happen either. And so um, it was it was essentially somewhat punitive. That's my impression of it. And in... Arizona, and the average money that they gave to people was like $447 a month. And, you know, you can't hardly buy groceries with that if mm-hmm. you have a family. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in Arizona, it was particularly punitive out there because they imposed a one-year limit on cash assistance to needy families, which was reg- roughly two- $278 a month. And they said they could only be on uh, federal assistance for one year. And uh, essentially what they did was in 1996, that's a year before uh, welfare reform was implemented, there were 5 million people on AFDC. And in 2019 there were exactly 1,100,000. The number of families that were getting federal welfare benefits dropped by 78%. So they went from getting that small amount of money to getting nothing. None. And uh, they, uh, I think it was like 60% of people who were eligible. Let me see if I can find that table. 60% of people who were eligible got the money. Here it is. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and in twenty uh twenty um, it had dropped to seventy eight percent of people did not get the money and in states down south uh they it was even worse because the number of, of parents of mothers who got money just basically disappeared. They were not giving money like in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. They were giving the money to ex-athletes, to um, uh, people, an ex-governor, ex-athlete, people who ran um, a uh, volleyball program. Everybody got the money but poor mothers. So there was I, I don't really understand how people could could not care that children were not getting um, any support. Now, mm-hmm. they gave states were in charge of um, food stamps, or I guess they call it a SNAP program. Mm-hmm. States are in charge of SNAP, but states don't pay your rent. Right. Where are you going to live? And how are you going to pay your rent, especially if you don't have a job? And what they found out is that people on TANF, only about 26 or 27% of the people on TANF actually work. You know, these people are very poor. A lot of them have uh, issues like drinking or, you know, emotional issues, and they may not have cars. How are they going to get to work if they don't have an automobile? So it's not easy to basically uh, live a life, a productive life, if you don't have the resources needed to do it. You know, it takes a lot to get yourself together, especially if you have children, to get out of there in the morning and get to work and get your children where they need to go. And you have to have support to do that in the home and outside of the home. So it's not easy for mothers who are having difficulty in their lives dealing with all of this. Very difficult. You are listening to the Book Nook on WYSO, our final weekend of programs for 2023. I've been joined by the prolific writer Barbara Fleming from Yellow Springs, and we'll continue our conversation right after this. The Book Nook on WYSO is presented by the Greene County Public Library, with additional support from Washington Centerville Public Library and Wright Memorial Public Library. If you're just tuning in, this is the Book Nook on WYSO, which comes your way every Saturday morning at 7 o'clock and every Sunday morning at 10.30. I've been joined on the program today by Barbara Fleming. We're talking about her book, African American Mothers, Their Children and Their Poverty in America in the First Quarter of the 21st century. Another key factor in this, Barbara, and you have a lot of statistics uh, showing the incredible carceration rates for black men and how they are so skewed and compared to the incarceration rates for white men. It's it's mind-boggling. Well, yeah, it's it's really uh, unfortunate that they saw that one of the things that, that, of course, you do when you incarcerate as many people as we have incarcerated in this country, you know, we have the highest 
imprisonment rate of any country in the world. And uh, one of the things that happens when you do that is that you separate fathers from their children. You separate fathers from their uh, families, you know, even if they weren't married. You know, they had a relationship with a woman that uh, where they produce children and they have um, their uh, maternal or paternal family and you separate people, and very often they put these people way out in the country. You know, they put prisons way out, and families have to try to figure out how to get out there to see their family members because they don't have, very often they don't have the resources or the money to go. And the other thing about prisons is that people make a lot of money off of prisons. Everything that you do in a prison costs money. You make a telephone call, costs you 10 times what it costs, 10, 20 times what it costs if you make it from your house. Mm-hmm. You know, all of the uh, um, things that you buy in a prison are extremely expensive. And and the other thing that they do in prison is that they make prisoners work for no money. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the... Um, I think down in Alabama there's a lawsuit right now where prisoners are suing the uh, state prison system because they have been forced to work for no money. And, you know, uh, the 13th Amendment is is interesting because that's the amendment that basically uh, freed the slaves. But the problem is that, um, I think it's the 13th, is that it says that you are free unless you're in prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, and no. so my husband is a historian. I asked him about that. I said, why would they say that? He said it was because they didn't want to release people who were in prison. Mm-hmm. So it's legalized slavery. And speaking of your husband, John Fleming, I understand yes. you mentioned in an email that he has a new book coming out. Now, is that the lengthening shadow of slavery, 50-year reprise yes. of the historical justification for affirmative action for African Americans in U.S. higher education? Yes, it is. It's a good book. Tell me about the book. We, um, he he wrote that book when we were living in D.C. and working, he was working at the Institute for the Study of Educational Policy at Howard University. And Howard University Press printed the first edition of that book in 1976. And we have since, uh, he and I, uh, negotiated the right from the Howard University Press to reprint it. So that's what we've done. We've reprinted it with an update, a preface, updated preface, and an updated foreword, which talks about uh, why it's necessary to uh, look at education again in this country because it has not gotten better. You know, one of the things that happened um, after uh, Brown v. Board is that there was a, a long hiatus where, you know, even though the Supreme Court had said that uh, school systems had to be integrated, they really uh, weren't, especially down south. So that took maybe 20, 25 years to integrate these school systems down south. But after that, um, there was a, a very important case, court case that occurred in Detroit, Michigan. 
I think it was either the Detroit NAACP or the Michigan NAACP sued the governor of Michigan to force uh, the state to integrate uh, all of the school systems surrounding Detroit with Detroit. And uh, the the suit had won at the district and the um, and the uh, other level in terms of um, uh, them having won the the case. But then the other school systems surrounding Detroit uh, took it to the Supreme Court. You know the defendants in the other school systems, and the Supreme Court turned it uh, down. They said that um, they would not force those school systems to integrate with Detroit. Mm -hmm. You know, so that has been a real stumbling block in terms of getting urban school systems uh, to have more resources, to have uh, better outcomes, you know, these high-poverty urban schools are very poor, and they don't have good good resources. And in a way, it's sort of like uh, what they tried to do with busing, which wasn't successful either. However, uh, what has happened in the meantime is that Detroit is like 77% black, and it has probably the worst um, scores standardized test scores on the National Assessment of Educational Progress. That's the nation's report card. That's what the Department of Education calls it. It probably has the worst scores of any school system in the country. And uh, they do what they call a trial urban district where they go in and look at urban school districts. And Detroit is has the lowest scores, and it is the poorest school district and uh, the Supreme Court would not allow them to integrate that school district with surrounding uh, suburban school districts. My guest is Barbara Fleming. We're talking about her book, African American Mothers, Their Children and Their Poverty in America in the First Quarter of the 21st Century. Barbara, this is kind of depressing and grim. How can it get better? What's your hope that that can be done to, to make things better? Um, I am optimistic. I mean, <laughs> you wouldn't think so based on this book, but I am. And the reason why I'm optimistic is because I am a developmental psychologist. There are half as many uh, children, boys and girls, born, you know, every year. You know, that's the way life is, <laughs> you know. So we have a chance to impact on these children in a very significant way if we can improve the conditions under which they live and they are educated. They basically are, um, we can improve the schools. There's no question in my mind about that because that's not hard. Children love to learn. You know, I had two children, so I know how much they love learning. You know, there's nothing they like more than basically um, uh, being challenged and being uh, um, 
learning new things, and so they love to learn, and they can learn. Now, the problem that you have with with little children is that the parents generally are not um, ready to uh, give their children what they need in order to assist their learning and in order to get them to where they need to be in terms of their scores on these standardized tests. And I think Jeffrey Canada has done a good job in um, the Harlem Children's Zone in terms of what he's tried to do. But I don't see a whole lot about uh, the model programs, the model uh, components that have come out of that. You know, I think there ought to be more in terms of what uh, school systems like Detroit, which has really had a very difficult time, and like other uh, high-poverty urban schools. I think that it's very easy to teach children to learn. It's not difficult if you make it. um, So one of the things that he did that I thought was fascinating is that he was having problems getting – young men to come to class. He put a music studio in that school where they could do hip-hop music. (laughs) I said, that is smart. Mm. Now, if you want to get kids to come to school, put a hip-hop music studio in the school, they will be there. Mm -hmm. Because they love hip-hop, they like rapping and all of that. So I think he's very creative in terms of what he's done, but I don't know how well that adapts itself to other schools because one thing I do know about the program that he runs in the Harlem Children's Zone, he has a lot of money. And he gets a lot of support because people are impressed with him and his school system. They really do like the way uh, he runs that system. And he has run it for so long, he is no longer the CEO of the – well, he may be the CEO, but he no longer runs the schools. He has another executive director that runs the schools. And he manages the programs and the budgets and all of that. But he's done a wonderful job at the Harlem Children's Zone. I only wish that what he has done could be replicated in urban systems across the country. I think that would be wonderful. So there's a there's a positive, optimistic... Uh... Oh, yeah, I'm very optimistic. Anytime you're dealing with children, you have to be because they're just such voracious learners. They want to know everything. They'll question you until you have to tell them to be quiet. But they are they want to know everything. They want to learn everything. And they are really... Um, you can teach them anything. You really can. And I think it's about time we got serious. And one of the one of the other models that people have looked at a lot is Finland. Finland had essentially the same problem that we have in this country. Finland had a situation where they had a bifurcated school system. They had upper middle class kids going to certain schools and they had working class and poor kids going to other schools. And so the poor poor and working class kids weren't doing as well, of course. That's usually the way it goes. And so what Finland decided, they decided they were going to change that, and they did. And what they did was that they restructured the school system to the point where every school 
was the infrastructure in every school was identical. Mm. You know, the the equipment, the the resources, uh, the building, everything, you know, they made it the same. But what, where I think the advantage in Finland came was that they basically um, decided that they were going to train their teachers differently. And in Finland, you cannot be a teacher simply because you want to. You have to go through an admissions process into the teacher training component of higher education. And they interview you and, you know, they test you and all of this. And so they take teaching extremely seriously. Mm. And they have basically been able to modify uh, how they train teachers to the point where the teachers themselves just love uh, what they do. And they, they are very committed. They are, and they pay teachers well. You know, one of the things I learned when I was a teacher, I taught at Central State University over in Wilberforce. Teaching is one of the toughest jobs you'll ever do because you have to put so much of yourself into it. And you have to work and you have to uh, prepare your lectures. And, you know, the, the students at Central State, which is a public uh, HBCU, those are the ones that get the students who are least prepared to go to college. And so one of the things you have to deal with, you have to deal with all of the issues that these children have when they come to college, and it, uh, it's a lot. I mean, it really is because they are so needy, and they come from environments that have not prepared them to matriculate at a four-year liberal arts college. So uh, I think that that faculty who work at public HBCUs are uh, overcommitted. Mm. They have to work so hard. And so, um, but it was the most rewarding job I ever had. I loved it. They had come from very poor, uh, low-income homes, very schools that weren't very good. But if they made it, it was just wonderful to see them graduate. So uh, teaching is is not rewarded the way it should be. Teaching is um, something that people take for granted, and it is not an easy job. I worked so hard when I was at Central State. You know, I have arthritis. My arthritis got worse when I was over there because of the stress I was under, trying to deliver everything I needed to do to get these kids prepared to pass this course and graduate, and I was committed to that. I was not going to cheat them. You know, if if I could help them, I was going to. Well, bless your heart, Barbara. I, I had an aunt who was a teacher for 50 years, and she absolutely loved teaching, and on her license plate, she had a personalized plate, and it said, teach them. I loved it, too. I thought it was the best job I ever had. Do you miss it? I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when I left, I got ready to leave. The students said, oh, Dr. Fleming, don't leave. Please stay. I said, I can't. I said, you need a young teacher who wants to make tenure. I said, I don't want to make tenure. 
and I'm working too hard at my age. I said, I, I, you need a young teacher who wants to make tenure and who can come in here and hit the ground running. Mm-hmm. That's what you need. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they got that, but I couldn't stay. Yeah. It was just costing me too much. And I didn't start teaching until late. If I had taught when I first went to Central State, I probably would have stayed. Okay. But I I didn't go into it until late. I was an administrator for almost 10 years. Okay. So, and that was hard in and of itself. Sure. <laughs> At HBCU, you go from one crisis to the next. Yeah. Well, Barbara, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, no, I love it. Uh, And I hope people will buy the book, African-American Mothers, Their Children and Their Poverty. And it's a good book because it tells you a lot about what's going on with these mothers and their children and their schools a lot. And I think people that African-Americans need to be more concerned about children and how they're being educated and why they're not being educated. It's important that um, we do more to support our children and their schooling. And I think that schools are probably the best place. It's hard to impact on a home. But it is not nearly as hard to impact on a school. Okay. Did did you mention in an email that you have another book coming out? Yeah, I'm doing one on African American fathers. Wow. You, yeah, you I'm are doing busy. That next. You are a busy woman. I am. I love it. Okay. Well, thanks again, <laughs> you know, Barbara. It's really interesting. I told my friend, they said, "What are you doing?" I said, "I'm writing books that don't sell." <laughs> <laughs> I found my niche. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, good, Barbara. Well, thanks, oh, thanks I love again. It. It's, it, it really, and what I find is that um, I need to write. It gives me a sense of balance, a sense of purpose, and I just love it. I understand, and I need to interview authors. My guest has been Barbara Fleming. Her book is African American Mothers, Their Children, and their poverty in America in the first quarter of the 21st century. You heard about it on the book nook. And uh, I'm Vic McKinnis, and, and Barbara, I'll talk to you again. All right. Thank you.